Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. This week we're discussing the fallout from the European Parliament elections, which have caused a severe jolt to the political establishment right across the continent. The majority of voters didn't bother going to the polls at all, but many of those who did voted for an assortment of extreme right-wing and left-wing parties, as well as independents. To discuss the implications, I'm joined in studio by our foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith, and on the phone by our correspondents in Brussels, London, Madrid, Paris and Berlin. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Staunton. Patrick Smith, it's fair to say the European Parliament elections are normally low-key affairs in terms of domestic politics, but this has not been the case this time. The, the fallout has been enormous, hasn't it? It has, certainly. I mean, what we've seen is, is uh, in four countries, uh, parties from the extreme left or extreme right have actually topped the poll, and they have created major crises in, in their domestic politics because uh, the issue has been raised, then what is going to happen to, to, to the next uh, uh, general election? In, in, in the UKIP case in particular, it's caused consternation in the Tory party already for several months. Uh, in in France, it uh, uh, led the French government to a panicky uh, announcement on taxes. It has uh, provoked a crisis in the Socialist Party and a crisis in the UMP. And in in other places, for example, in in uh, in Ireland, uh, indeed in in Spain, it has led to the resignation of of, of party leaders. So it's really shaking up domestic uh, national politics. Mm. The pattern is, is is varies. It's right wing in some cases, left in others. And then in Germany and Italy, for example, the establishment parties got a very solid support. So is it possible to discern any kind of overall trend from from these elections? Well, I think the important thing to say is, although the, there's been strong gains for the for the far left and the far right, uh, the overwhelming majority in the parliament is still uh, broadly uh, uh, centre politics, centre left, centre right, and and liberal, and that they will have a comfortable 460 plus of the 750 seats, and and they will be able to conduct uh, business. Admittedly, probably through through doing coalition deals more often than, than they had in, in the past. Um, certainly, I think that the overall trend is that parties which were overseeing and implementing austerity policies have suffered. Uh, protest parties have have gained, but some of the uh, protest parties have have been hit. Jobbik, which is an extreme right uh, party in Hungary, uh, lost. Uh, votes and as did uh, Gerd Wilders uh, in in Holland um, and so it's not completely uniform. Suzanne Lynch, our European correspondent, is on the line from Brussels. Um, on the same theme, Suzanne, you you have written about a north-south uh, divide here, where in general uh, voters in in northern countries, including um, uh, Denmark and Britain and in France, have tended to vote uh, for extreme right-wing parties and in the south uh, Mediterranean countries um, in, in Greece for example and, and also in Spain we've seen a strong vote for the left um, what do you think that divide is all about what's going on there Yes, well, as, pa- as Pat was saying there, you know, the, the huge protest vote has sent analysts looking for trends, you know, to see is, is there any coherence in these voting patterns. One suggestion is this, this north-south divide. I mean, we saw this during the Eurozone crisis where, I mean, uh, political analysts have written, written about this, that it was the southern countries, the pigs countries, with, with Ireland included, that were the countries that needed a, ba- a bailout. Um, and now that we're seeing that maybe these southern countries are the same countries that vote left-wing, 
so, um, you know, in Italy and Spain and in Greece, they, they, there was a much stronger far left vote uh, than far right. Um, and on the north, um, much more of a, of a tendency to, to vote for the extreme right parties. But there's also an, an east-west divide happening a bit in, in Europe. I mean, we were talking about population, or sorry, about population turnout uh, percentages. Um, and what we've seen is a lot of the Eastern European countries had very, very low turnouts, not just Slovakia, but countries like Slovenia, the Czech Republic, etc. And, you know, the, the, um, the, the marginal increase was driven by um, a bigger jump in countries like France and Germany, the old EU states. So there is a problem here about engagement um, to the east of the bloc also that has been manifested in these elections. It does seem remarkable, doesn't it, that, that I suppose the countries that have come out of, you know, uh, decades of communism, um, you, you would almost think they would appreciate the vote more, the, having the vote, and, but yeah. it doesn't seem to be the case. Slovakia, yeah, as uh, mentioned, yeah. 13%. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we might kind of miss in Ireland is, for example, what, what a role uh, the, the crisis in Ukraine is playing in domestic politics in Eastern European countries. I mean, in Bulgaria, for example, they've got a right-wing party, Ataka, which didn't do particularly well in this election. Um, but there was, they launched their campaign in, in Russia, for example. There's a lot of pro-Russian uh, feeding in Bulgaria. So, I mean, I think this coloured the, the vote and the debate in Eastern Europe over the, over the last five months in a way that we can't really understand uh, to the west of the bloc. Right. And um, you, as you mentioned a moment ago, some of the, the, the Mediterranean countries, the, the vote for the likes of Syriza uh, uh, in Greece and... Mm. Um, the Podemos party arriving on the scene in Spain and so on, it's probably easy to understand that vote. It's an anti-austerity vote and these are parties that are really, you know, promising to, uh, um, they've got very strong anti-austerity platforms. It's more difficult to understand why in prosperous countries like France and Britain Mm. and Denmark um, that they would be moving away from the establishment. Like, what have have those people got to complain about? Well, I think I think the main main theme is immigration. Again, not an issue in Ireland. Um, but if you, I mean, if you turn on the TV in France and in the evenings, they're you know they're equivalent of their of their chat shows, their prime times. Like the, the, the discussion is about immigration, about uh, you know uh, about Muslim populations, about about you know the fr- French identity is it being lost? These are the kind of debates that are taking place all over Europe constantly to an extent that we we, don't, we you know people people are very surprised at. Um, Sweden and Denmark, immigration was absolutely one of the key issues there and that is one of the main reasons for uh, the success of the far-right parties parties in those countries because, I, you know, because traditionally Scandinavian companies, countries have been that much more liberal they um, have, have allowed a lot more Im- immigrants in uh, so, so the government is, is kind of paying the price Price of that. I mean, we see it. We see it in Britain, and we see it. We see it in France, obviously, where these these smaller. Like, you, you, it's worth remembering that UKIP has no seats in Westminster. There's no seats in the House of Commons, and yet it has succeeded in pushing immigration to the absolute top of the political agenda and top of media agenda in Britain. Um, so that's one of the most kind of interesting and potentially damaging effects of the rise of these extreme parties: how they are shaping uh, mainstream political policy. Yes, indeed. And EU leaders are meeting in Brussels um, this evening as we speak, and obviously they'll be discussing the fallout from these elections. What options are open to them, do you think, to try to win back support for the centre ground and and to win back support for the European Union itself as an entity and as a concept? Yeah, I mean, the tractors of the European Union are are seizing on this as an example of uh, how voters have had enough with the European Union. But we've been here 
before with various treaties, as in Ireland, when Ireland rejected the treaty and then, then, then they ran the treaty again. We had around 2005, France and the Netherlands rejecting the idea of a European constitution. So there have been signs before. But, I mean, you had a perfect storm this time of, of the biggest uh, economic crisis to have taken place since the foundation of the European Union. Um, and, you know, these fears about immigration and this, this manifested itself in, in the ballot box. Now, in terms of what countries have to do, I mean, again, the, the, the irony of all this is that the European Parliament, it does have, have more powers now since the Lisbon Treaty, but it still is fairly limited in terms of decision-making in the European Union. Really, the decisions are still made by member states who meet in, their, in the various um, configurations um, and, and by the European Commission. So, you know, there is an irony that the... the Okay, your voters might have, you know, lashed out at, at the European Union, but they've actually uh, attacked the very EU institution that had the, the least to do with the financial crisis and the response to the financial crisis. So, in a sense, the worry is that member states, all 28 member states and leaders, are going to can afford to just to ignore it if they want. But what, where the real where the real test for them will be domestically, as Patrick just said there, that um, we saw last night, Hollande uh, came out strongly. Uh, criticising the EU, calling it unwieldy, etc. I mean, this is from the country that was one of the founding members of the European Union. Um, so it just goes to show how effective uh, the National Front has been in completely changing the agenda and, and the debate about the EU in, in one of the biggest countries in Europe. OK, well, we'll be watching that meeting this evening with interest, uh, Suzanne. Thank you for that. I'm joined now by Guy Hedgeco in Madrid. Um, Guy, an interesting feature of the uh, election in Spain was the five seats taken by uh, the Podemos party, a party that's just two months old. Can you tell us something about them? Well, yeah, they're really a, I mean, an unknown quantity at the moment. They've only been in existence for about three months. Um, and they rose out of the, uh, the Indignados movement, uh, which started in, in 2011, as a sort of reaction to people's um, people's frustration with politicians and the, the economic elite in Spain. Um, and the leader, Pablo Iglesias, um, who was the candidate um, in the European elections and the leader of the party, he is very closely linked to the Indignados movement. Um, and the Indignados movement in itself is, is really just a protest movement which uh, sparked a lot of um, debate um, and uh, organized demonstrations against uh, the government, the political parties, and the political system. Now, the, the Podemos party, Podemos means we can. So it's, it's a, actually a political party now. And what they're doing is trying to get into the political system itself um, and try and change things from, from within. But they have a very low budget. They've been working with crowdfunding to get their financing. Um, they've got this one uh, particular figure leading them, Pablo Iglesias, who's very uh, media-friendly, very telegenic. Um, and they're really an unknown quantity. We don't know how far they're going to go, but they've been a real sensation in getting 1.2 million votes in Sunday's election. And Guy, to take a, a look at the wider picture in Spain, from the outside it looks like Spain is starting to do well, it's starting to make a recovery, um, and yet uh, the governing popular party um, took a battering at the polls, the Socialist Party even more so, um, similar to ourselves, it, it, it lost its party leader over the, the outcome. So, have people any sense there as to what the lasting impact will be of the likes of Podemos? Are, are, are these new parties on the scene, uh, you know, for good? Or is this a sort of mid-term um, protest vote by Spanish voters, do you think? 
Well, it's very hard to tell at the moment. I mean, the, the leader of the Socialist Party yesterday, straight after the, the results came out, really, um, Alfredo Perez Rubalcaba, who's been leader for a few years of the Socialist Party, he announced that he'll be stepping down in a couple of months. Um, as you said, the Socialists suffered a very bad defeat. The, the, the governing Popular Party uh, suffered a, a pretty pretty badly, even though they actually emerged as the winning party, but they lost a lot of seats. So it does seem there is some kind of crisis among those two parties, which are the sort of the, the duopoly of Spanish uh, politics. Um, and those parties have come in for a lot of, sort of criticism in, in recent years for their handling of the economic crisis. So it seems that right now that the, the time is ripe for other parties to come forward, because people do seem to be fed up with the two main parties, which have really dominated really since uh, the return to democracy just over three decades ago. Um, so you could argue that the, the, the time is right for a party like Podemos. The big question is whether it can really build on this result and convince people that it's something more than just a protest vote. Has it got concrete uh, proposals and so on? Thanks to Guy Hedgeco in Madrid. Perhaps the most sensational result of the elections was that of the National Front in France, which topped the poll with a quarter of the vote. Lara Marlowe joins us from Paris. Lara... I'm tempted to begin with what might seem a judgmental question, but what the hell is going on in France? <laughs> I wish I knew. Uh, no, it, it feels like uh, the total implosion of the French political class. Um, the UMP, the, the main establishment conservative party, the party of President Nicolas Sarkozy, had its entire leadership resign this morning over a financial scandal. Um, Marine Le Pen, uh, the leader of the National Front, is running very, very strong. She is confident now that she will be on the runoff in the presidential election in 2017. And as the National Front sort of forges ahead in its plans for transforming France and Europe, the two leading parties, the Socialists and, and the uh, Conservatives, have basically just fallen apart. Uh, François Hollande went on television last night to give his uh, reaction to the European elections, and he, he basically said two things. He said one thing he said was it, was it was the fault of Europe, which was incomprehensible for him, and the other thing he said was that he, he remade all of the promises that he's been making for two years, i.e. he says he's going to reform France, and he says he's going to get Brussels to change the way Europe operates. And he has performed on neither of those promises. He's become completely inaudible. People don't listen to him. The Socialist Party received less than 14% of the vote, which is its worst election performance ever. Uh, and the, the UMP, the Conservatives, who are also in such disarray, um, got trailed the National Front by more than four points. So the, the National Front really is the leading party in France now. And it's just total uncertainty what can happen next. How can François Hollande govern for the next three years when he's at, at 18 percent in the opinion polls, when he has virtually no popular support left at all? Uh, so there's a big question mark over what's going to happen. I, I was just uh, at, at a lunch with the Presidential Press Association which, with a high-ranking official who's very close to Hollande, and, and one of my colleagues was saying to me, we, we realized the only thing that's missing for a total disaster now in France is the street. 
Uh, and if, if something sparks off street riots like those we saw, for example, in 2005, um, it's going to be very, very messy indeed. People are angry. They're fed up. They have zero confidence in the political class. And any, anything could happen now in France. And this has also uh, really weakened France's position in Europe. Um, Hollande says he's going to Brussels tonight for this dinner with the European Council and that he will tell them that Europe has to uh, foster growth and employment and investment. Uh, but I, I wonder if he's any more audible in the European Council than he is in his own country. Now, of course, Hollande did, he sometimes, you know, people say he's not, he's, um, he talks a lot and doesn't do anything. He did do something recently. He sacked his cabinet and he appointed a new prime minister in, in uh, Manuel Valls. Is there, mm-hmm. is there any indication at this stage that, that Valls, who's, who is a lot more popular than Hollande, is he turning things around? Is there any indication that he can win back some of the lost support for the Socialist Party? You're right. It was right after the municipal, after the socialists lost very badly the municipal elections at the end of March. Uh, he appointed Valls because he had no choice, and Valls is very popular. His popularity rating is around 60 percent, and obviously, when you compare that with with Hollande's 18 percent, it's it's much better. But Valls campaigned very hard in the European elections for the socialist, and he also made some huge concessions to the left of the left. Uh, he he increased. Um, what well, he he decreased taxes uh, for the the you know poor people in France, and he he uh, gave something to the civil servants as well on the, their inflation index and so on. So he, he he tried, and that didn't seem to make any difference. It's as if Vos's popularity is somehow independent of the support for the government. Uh, he talked a lot about reforms. He went on television right after the election results came in on Sunday night, and he said reform, 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 we're going to reform. Um, unfortunately, he didn't, he didn't really make a very strong or a good impression on people. He was wearing a black tie. He looked like he was in mourning. And there was a problem with, with his eyes. I think it was the teleprompter was reflecting his eyes. So they looked sort of glassy and as, as if he were crying. And he went on rather too long. Uh, it was almost a repeat of his general policy speech. And he got into all sorts of details about territorial reform or so on. And this was just a few minutes after Marine Le Pen was on television and she was sharp and concise and punchy and decisive and um, I'm, I'm afraid that you know people are listening to Marine Le Pen right now. Yes, um, I was going to say maybe Vaz was crying at the time but uh, now, now you mentioned Marine Le Pen I mean the National Front it's, they're not new on the scene, it's not the first time they've shaken up the establishment and we all remember when Jean-Marie Le Pen got through to a, a final runoff for the um, in a presidential election, but she does seem to have taken the party to a new level. What does she have that the French people seem to like so much? Well, she she's very direct. You can understand everything she says. Her message is very simple. Her message is that Europe and the euro and immigrants are the source of all our problems. And even if you disagree with her, which which I do, uh, at least you understand the message. Whereas the uh, the, the socialists and the the UMP, um, it's what the French call long de bois. They they don't they they just evade questions. They never answer anything directly. She has a lot of charisma. Uh, she she's a strong woman, 
And people like that, and they're also so fed up with what she calls the U- UMPS, uh, the, the sort of combination of, of the two leading parties, the government parties. Um, and she's constantly saying they're corrupt, uh, they're corrupt, they're ineffectual, they never do anything, and so on. And, and basically, it, it, it's, it's true, especially the corruption, uh, certainly, of the UMP was shown today when they all resigned. Uh, the ineffectuality is, is, is obviously true. Um, I was I had a meeting with a, an old socialist, um, well, actually, it was from the Mitterrand Elysee, uh, Jacques Attali, yesterday, who said that every French president is terrified of the street, and so nobody ever does anything. And, and it, it's true, that's why France has been so slow at reforming. Uh, it's been much slower than any other country in Europe. And then the people notice uh, that there's immobility, and they're punished for that. And if they try to reform or do anything, they're punished for that as well. Uh, so it's a very difficult country to govern, and at the moment, it doesn't really feel like it's being governed. Mm. And finally, Lara, as you mentioned, the UMP, that's Nicolas Sarkozy's uh, party, they, they, they've had a, a crisis today, their leader has resigned, they're in disarray, uh, the socialists are, are in some turmoil, so could Marine Le Pen be a serious candidate for the presidency the next time, if the opposition position is really isn't organized enough to stand absolutely, up to her. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, all of this, this sort of uh, implosion of the French political class, Marine Le Pen must be rubbing her hands with glee. And certainly her entourage uh, really believe now, and not just her entourage, actually, all of my French colleagues and just about everybody I know now is convinced that she will make it to the runoff in 2017. And the question will really be whether these two struggling parties, which, which feel like they're in their dying days, whether one of them can muster a candidate who's strong enough and credible enough to stand up to Marine Le Pen. Lara Marta in Paris, thank you. Of course, the implications of the National Front's result in France have been felt far beyond the borders of that country. Our Berlin correspondent, Derek Scali, is just out of a press conference with Germany's finance minister, Wolfgang Schäuble. Derek, I understand Mr Schäuble had some interesting things to say about the French result. Yes, indeed. Uh, Wolfgang Schäuble is one of the most ardent uh, European, pro-Europeans in, in Germany and has been for many decades. So when he talks about Europe, it's usually worth listening in. And he said that the, the French result really wasn't just a French problem. It was a European problem. And it was well worth uh, France's neighbours asking what contribution they had made. Perhaps he said that the European campaign had been too vague. It had been too much about peace and prosperity and nice, nice vague concepts, but not about concrete answers to concrete problems. And then he asked uh, a rhetorical question. He said, what mistakes have we made in the European Union that a quarter of the French electorate voted for what he described as a fascist extremist party? Now, those are strong words for a German government minister. They're strong words, uh, particularly from Wolfgang Schäuble. He's the most senior man in Angela Merkel's cabinet, and he's really throwing down the gauntlet to European leaders, to his own boss, uh, but also to other European leaders meeting in Brussels. He said it's not enough to uh, obsess about personalities. That's exactly the wrong thing that needs to happen. He says he says we really need to view European politics, we view national politics. We don't talk about democracy in uh, a national election campaign. We talk about concrete problems that require concrete answers. And he said, we're, we're moving to that stage on the European level, but we're not quite there yet. And that seemed to be a tacit uh, criticism, really, of Angela Merkel, who, who conducted a rather, uh, a rather vague and uh, 
meandering European election campaign where she basically refused to acknowledge there were any problems in Europe and she refused to acknowledge that even on her right wing, on her right flank, there's a new Eurosceptic party in Germany. Now, they only got 7% of the vote, but that's 7% more than they had uh, two years ago. And uh, Wolfgang Schäuble seemed to be tacitly admitting that uh, ignoring problems like this, ignoring parties, whether at home in Germany or in France, really isn't the problem and that we now have uh, we now have a bigger problem to deal with as a result of this approach. So what message, Derek, do you think Angela Merkel will be bringing to this evening's uh, um, EU leaders uh, meeting in Brussels? Well, she's very much said she's in listening mode. Angela Merkel is famous for always letting everyone else around the table speak first and showing her cards last. Uh, it's a strategy that works increasingly less well because everyone realizes that what she has to say, you know, her thumbs up or thumbs down on a candidate will be crucial. But she says she's very much in listening mode this evening. And that's probably to do with the fact that she's not entirely enthusiastic about her own man, Jean-Claude Juncker, being the next commission president. There's lots of complicated reasons why she wants to keep uh, David Cameron happy and he doesn't like Mr. Juncker. But she's also not quite sure that uh, uh, Mr. Juncker is the best man for the job. So she'll definitely be playing a waiting game, but that's really exactly what Wolfgang Schäuble seems to be warning against. He says the problems are urgent, that result is a wake-up call, and uh, European politicians uh, need to get back to business and talk about the European Union and not uh, a beauty contest. I'm joined now by Mark Hennessy, our London editor. Mark, uh, the performance of the National Front in France, which we've just been discussing with Lara Marlowe, was matched. In fact, it was bettered by UKIP, which took 27% of the vote in Britain. And the establishment parties are reeling from this result, but should they have seen this coming? Well, they certainly should have seen and did see that there was going to be a very strong performance by uh, UKIP. Now, I think the actual scale of it did, in fact, take the parties by surprise at the end of the day. The question is now what they do about it. And all of the main parties are talking about listening to uh, public concerns and crafting some new language, but it's not clear that any of them are going to be able to take any uh, concrete actions that will deal with uh, public dissatisfaction, largely because the reasons why people vote for UKIP are many and varied, and they're not necessarily always coherent. And the problem that we we now have in Britain is that for David Cameron to try and appeal to those who voted for UKIP, he would have to be issuing even more anti-EU noises, uh, even more negative commentary about uh, immigration. And if there is one lesson in British politics over the last three or four years is that you can't out UKIP UKIP. And the danger for for him doing that is that he will freeze out uh, centre ground votes that he will need uh, later uh, in the election in May 2011. Labour's problem, on the other hand, is perhaps in some ways even more acute because Mr Cameron is bidding to uh, get uh, Conservative waivers back into the Tory fold in May 2015 by being the only one who is promising an election or a referendum, I should say, on EU membership in 2017. So far, Labour has not matched that pledge. It is saying only that it would have a referendum if there was a new treaty where there was a further transfer of powers. And uh, because of that, there is a danger that in North of England constitu- uh, constituencies where there is a feeling about an opposition towards immigration, there's an, an inchoate sort of opposition to the European Union, that it could be harder for uh, Mr Miliband to attract back uh, those who wavered in their support for Labour uh, in the elections here. And as you mentioned, Mark, the election in Britain is now less than a year away. Um, 
Nigel Farage, uh, the leader of UKIP, a right-wing anti-immigration party, insists and is very bullish about the result and says this is a sea change in British politics. Is that the case, you think, or is this um, a, a mid-term or, or late-term kicking protest vote by the British British electorate? Well, it, it, it's more than a late-term kicking, and it may not at the same time be a sea change. It depends on what UKIP does now. Uh, they're blessed in some ways because there is a by-election here taking place in Newark in Nottinghamshire on June 5th, and that is uh, really the perfect launch pad for UKIP to come off uh, a really good result in the European elections and then th- try for uh, House of Commons House of Commons place in this by-election. Now, that particular seat was vacated by a Conservative MP with a 16,000 majority. If you look at the uh, European Parliament election results for that district council area, UKIP were actually ahead of the Conservatives. Now, you can't draw too many lessons necessarily from European elections to uh, House of Commons elections, but you can draw some, and particularly with the kind of momentum that they have uh, coming out of the weekend and the fact that the by-election is about 10 days away, they are going to go very close in um, in Newark. Not with a brilliant candidate, uh, perhaps, uh, but nevertheless, all the other mood music around them is very positive. There's, there's a very interesting issue here uh, that applies not only to uh, the, the election in Britain, but right across Europe, and that is the ten- temptation to say if, if a general election were to happen under these conditions, what would be the result? And I think one of the interesting things is that there is also evidence uh, that voters do regard European elections as a case apart. BBC has come up with some very interesting statistics in, in, in Britain, uh, extrapolating the, the regional election results across the country. Uh, they only took part, place in certain places and comparing them then with the Europeans. And they found that the, the, the UKIP was getting about 17% of the vote nationally in the local elections with 27% of the vote in the Europeans. And, and an exit poll, no, I think a poll over the weekend, also found a lot of UKIP voters saying that they didn't, they didn't think they probably would vote UKIP at no, a general election. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about that uh, whatsoever. But that goes back to the point that Farage was making on Sunday about targeting of constituencies. There are places in uh, Britain, particularly in the east of England, Boston, for instance, in Lincolnshire, uh, Thanet in Kent, uh, there are some uh, places, Thurrock in Essex, there are a number of other constituencies, where there is a very negative feeling towards uh, immigration that has been particularly impacted by Eastern European migration over the last uh, 10 years. Uh, not all, far from, uh, it's not always negative by any manner of means, but it's certainly perceived negatively by a percentage of people in those constituencies. So there is a national there is a local appetite for the UKIP message that will not be reflected nationally. OK, Mark Hennessy in London, thank you. That's all from this week's edition of Worldview, with thanks to Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, Guy Hedgeko in Madrid, Laura Marlowe in Paris, Derek Scally in Berlin, Mark Hennessy in London and Patrick Smith here in studio, from sound engineer James Davis, producer Sinead O'Shea and me, Chris Dooley. Thank you for listening and goodbye.